focus to, to Genesis chapter 1. And we're talking about what I'm calling the great delegation. Does anybody remember what the great delegation is? Let's pretend I don't have any sermon notes and you can just, you know, tell me what, what is this? What's the great delegation? We're saying that government, not politics, not who do I vote for, but what is government and how do I approach it? It's a very intensely biblical idea. It's central to how we relate to God, actually, because he's the sovereign and we're not. And these are statements of government. The Bible's instruction on government generally is about self-government, meaning what you do with what's been entrusted to you as a delegation from God. That's what I'm calling the great delegation. Now, we've just seen the not red wave, right, in our, in our history. We've just seen what the electorate did or whatever happened with the election. We said... Um, the official poll results of the polls, the actual voting, did not reflect what was being reported before, and it often doesn't. And everyone's looking at what, what's happened. The bigger question, with all the questions of our electoral process and, and the legitimacy of elections, the bigger question is that half of our country that is confused about what humans are or what our responsibilities are or what this nation is or where we've come from. And it's because there's deception from God's enemy and we are seeing the deception all the time. And my proposal here is not to fix our attention on our political process or our governance in our country because I don't think that's super helpful. My intention is to reinforce what we know about who God is, who we are, and where we're going, what he said about us. And it's all about government. Remember, our theme verse in, in this study is 1 Peter 1.13. We're not going to trust in kings or horses or rulers or, or anything, but our hope is to be fixed completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.13. Now, a week ago, it looked like the polls were saying there was going to be a major shift in power in our country, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And my challenge to you then was, if the major power shift comes in what you consider to be your favor, your direction, or God's direction, as far as we can understand in the clunky way of our political process, um, if you think it's shifting in, in your favor, you don't want to rely on these outcomes. Your hope is not in the politicians or government or human government. And now on the other side of this, uh, for a lot of people, disappointment, a lot of us for disappointment that uh, it seems like uh, as you look at things at face value, 
more than half of our population considers that enslavement or the loss of self-determination for state provision is preferable to self-determination, to living your life freedom without intervention. And that's, that's the problem. Um, but see, even still, I don't have to be down about this. I don't need to be super up about winning an election. I don't need to be super down about it either. Because the truth is that God is sovereign. And our responsibility is always to him. In terms of remorse and tragedy and sadness over loss, I always think of 1 Samuel chapter 16. God doesn't rebuke Samuel anywhere else as far as I can recall. But he rebukes Samuel there, and it's not a strong rebuke. It's a, come on, get, let's go. Remember the story? God has rejected Saul from being king, and Samuel is drenching his bed with tears over the loss of God's favor for Saul. And he's just des- des- despondent about it. And God comes to him and says, in 1 Samuel 16, he says, how long are you going to re- grieve over Saul? I've rejected him. Take up your horn of oil and go. We'll, go. we'll go anoint the next king. And see, it's, there's a lot of Saul-eyed government from that point on. There's a lot of wasting resources in Saul's insanity, using the military to go attack and find David. They do all these wild goose chases to chase David down for no reason. There's, you know, Saul is a, is a maniac, and, he's, and he rules for quite a while after God rejects him and David gets anointed to be the next king. But the point is that Samuel is looking at the circumstance with all that he knows, and he doesn't know that God has something better, and now it's time to go after that. And that's the way um, sovereignty works. God is not pleased with man's wickedness. And because man does wicked things, like killing infants, Montana, you see the Montana vote that they said they will not insist that we preserve born children that are born alive. We won't protect them and, and keep them alive if they're born in botched abortions. Okay, the, God isn't pleased with that, right? And he's not, his sovereignty isn't canceled by that. He's doing something despite the horrors of our time and the wickedness of men. And um, that's evident all through the scriptures as you watch the story unfold. Well, let's talk about the great delegation and that's, this is about you and God, me and you and God, our walk with him. And no one's ever going to take this away from you. And you can be in a prison camp and exercise your God-given delegated responsibility to live your life before him, to please him. That's really what government is about. It's about self-determination under the creator with his instruction, with his revelation. The blueprint for man is given in Genesis 1.26 when God says, this is the purpose. This is what I'm going to do. God said... And strange language providing the context for the rest of Revelation that God is one God in three persons. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1, 26. So we have form, let us make man in our image, whatever that is, and then function and let them rule. Form and function is undeniable. And there's a, we've talked about this. There's a debate on what it means to be in God's image and likeness. Is it the immaterial component in man with the capacity to serve God in, in a way that uh, lower creatures cannot? I, I think that's probably right. right? And, but, but the reason why 
you have the form, the being made in God's image and likeness, is so that we're able to rule. And um, I'll just share with you real quick, the Hebrew here doesn't say let them rule necessarily. It says they will rule. Meaning, it's, it's an imperfect tense, and it could be modal. It could say let them. It could mean that. But it could also mean they will rule. But I think the better, actually, translation than both of those is so that they rule. It's the purpose inherent in why he made us in his image and likeness, so that we would rule. And that's, that's a better rendering. So they rule over the fish of the sea. We cannot rule over God's works without bearing his image. But I want to bring out that it's probably not a command here. He says, let them rule. He says, no, let, we're going to make them in, their like, in, our, in, in our likeness and image so that they will rule. And that is the blueprint. That's the creation, you know, conference of God, not the angels, God. The angels didn't make us. God made us. One God in three persons made us. Father, Son, Spirit created mankind in his image. And what we have is the sort of creation conference, like the, the planning meeting for the construction project. Let's do this. That's what Genesis one twenty six is. And then you have the carrying out of that in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And what this means is that not that God is feminine or masculine, it's that both men and women carry God's image. We are image bearers of God. I don't believe in the yin and yang interpretation of Genesis 127, that, that, in, in the, uh, that, that this is taught out there by Christians, that in the Taoist, I think, idea that you have a feminine and a, a, and a masculine um, side of reality or fate or whatever, that, um, that that's reflective of God making man and his image as male and female. But God doesn't reveal himself as male and female. He reveals himself as, one, as a father with a son and the Holy Spirit. And so I, I don't go there with, I don't think it's valuable to talk about God's feminine side, right? Because, because I think that takes us down pathways the Bible isn't intending. And yes, Jesus said, how I long to gather uh, Jerusalem together like a, a hen gathers her chicks. And, and there is nurture and, and all that, but that's not necessarily about God being female. So I, I just would not go there if I were you since we do have the revelation of God as God created man in his own image. So I just leave it there. Both men and women carry God's image. It's not sexed. It's, it's being a human being. And humans, women and men are both human beings with that same honor of bearing God's image. First Peter 3.7 says as much. Now then, we move from the context of the, the conference, we're going to do this, to doing this, to what God tells them. And this is really interesting to me. God blessed them. So he did make them in verse 27, summary of of chapter 2. And then he blessed them. So he has something to say to them. Blessing from God is always verbal. God speaks and it happens. Blessing is a verbal word. God said to them, to the two people he had made, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. You could say, there's a repetition here. It's exactly what he said in the blueprints. He said it here in the, in the instructions. So God made the thing, and then he told it what to do. And the, the form follows function. His design, he's a perfect designer, right? He made the thing to do it, and then he says, now go do it. And that's pretty straightforward. 
And I see in this the responsibility and subdue it and rule and capability of subordinate rule. And it has to be subordinate rule. When he says rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and so forth, when he says that, it's in Hebrew, it is marked an imperative mood. He's commanding them to rule. He's not saying you have the option of ruling. He's commanding it. And when someone mandates the, the exercise of one's volition, that person's volition is now subordinate to that mandate. Right there in Genesis 1.28, maybe you've seen this before. I, this is a new thought uh, to me, that it's an imperative in verse 28 where it isn't in verse 26. So you have form and function in the design, program, in the design conference, if you will, and then you have the commission that he tells them, go do this. Go rule. Go rule in a subordinate capacity. And you know it's subordinate because the kingmaker is above the king. The one that tells you go rule is giving you a, a subordinated dominion under God's works. Under God. You see how that works? So there was never a time where man was to consider himself independent from God and his self-determination and his choices and his things. And that's the big thing about this great delegation is it's not just go do what you want. You have free will for sure, but there's, you aren't free about what the right choices are. And that's why we call it, that's what we call morality. There's a right and wrong to our choices because there's a creator to whom we're responsible. So I think Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28 is a pretty tight picture of the design, the instance of creation, and then the commission of the created beings, the super creatures on earth, the humans. We're, we're on a totally different order from all the other earthly creation, despite what the biologists and psychologists will say, and the anthropologists, we're not animals because we are bearing God's image and likeness. We are made in that image and likeness, and I believe that goes to directly to our capacity to relate to God spiritually. We're not animals, but we do have a biological form like the animals. But God reveals here that there's more. We're the caretaker. We're the one to subdue and rule. I want you to also notice be fruitful is a command. Multiply is a command. Fill the earth is a command. God isn't worried about population controls in Genesis 1.28. But there is the responsibility to subdue and utilize what God has provided. What I'm going for in stating this as government is that God made man to rule. We're supposed to govern. You're supposed to make responsible decisions for God's sake. But I think I just defined worship. Making my decisions for him, disregarding my interests and concerning myself for his interests, that is not as I will, but your will be done. That is the ultimate insubordinate rule under your creator is whatever he's given you in John 17, Jesus says, what you've given to me, I've used to glorify you. And that's the challenge of creation as a, with a creator as, as his creatures bearing his image. What are you going to do with what he's given you? The answer is always, it should always be the worship choice, the thing that honors you, the thing that glorifies you. What do you want me to do? Here's my day. You gave it to me. Father, what shall I do with it? I've pointed out that man's rulership in Genesis 1.28 is commanded. It isn't suggested, it's commanded. And so follow me through a logical thought process here, please. If, from, if, if it's commanded, then from the very beginning of our dominion in Genesis 
it's under the authority of the creator because he commanded it. There's never been a human being who wasn't responsible to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the made-up stuff that people want to say uh, is their version of the divine, but the God who has revealed himself definitively and authoritatively and exclusively through the children of Israel. This creator, the only creator, the one whose people rest on the seventh day just like their, their creator, this people... Um, that gave us this revelation, they have told us by God's grace and his provision, according to Paul and Romans, right? They have given us the knowledge of our creator and therefore a relationship with our creator. It's a fantastic thought, but it's bounded and it's restricted and it's only through him. And, and so, what ha- what, so what's the whole world doing? Well, the whole world is in ridiculous upheaval in rejection of this simple basic principle that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has the right to say what we should and should not be doing with our free choices. And he lets us make our choices, but he doesn't let us choose whether they're right or wrong. We have to figure out from him what the right choice is and then for his sake make it. So I'm saying that government is worship. Self-government by God's design is worship. And I'm not saying that we should turn our governmental structures, our municipal structures into, into worship centers. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you, no human being ever gets it right until he's governing in his choices that have been committed to him for God's sake. And that's why this devastation of the secularization of our society, people would have thought this was a no-brainer 200 years ago. This is, of course, our choices are, we belong to God, we're his people, we're going to serve him with our choices. And this appeal to morality was always considered something about the creator. Rulership or authority is the right to make decisions, as we've discussed earlier. Rulership or authority is the right to make decisions regarding the realm under the commission that 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 exists. So God made everything. He gets to decide everything for everything. But then he's delegated some of that to us in terms of what we'll do with the things in front of us. He's given us this capacity of volition, which is the only way you can rule is if you're choosing. If someone is remote controlling you, you aren't ruling over what's been given to you. See, this, this idea of the deterministic overdrive, you know, hyper-Calvinistic, you know, God's the, the remote controller, misunderstands that in Genesis one twenty eight he commands them to rule. He doesn't say, I got this and I will rule through you, he commands them to rule. And they should make their choices to please him, which is what we would, one of the ways we would define worship. Thus, human volition, the capacity to choose, is a consequence of our form and our function. We're made in his image and likeness, and we're to rule. The capacity to make decisions and the responsibility to rule over God's works is what volition is. And that's what self-government is, and that's one reason, by application, I would say, what they did in the founding of this country was, was a precious thing because they're trying to enshrine that channel of responsibility between you, the creature, and God, the creator, and not infringe upon that unduly. And the way they did that was they made a very loopy system of checks and balances where the government's hands are tied at every step. They can't just come in your house and take you. I mean, they're not supposed to be able to by our constitutional, by what they wrote in the, in the, in the government. That's, they're saying with habeas corpus that you have the right to your body, and that's your God's image bearer, and they're honoring that. 
And that's, that's unheard of in world history. Of course, the king can just do whatever he wants. But no, there's a, there's a check on the government because the framers, the, the people with the power that established the government, were saying, we want to pre- preserve this channel of human responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that it's turned out well. In fact, I think what we've done with it is tragic. You know, in Montana and, and in Connecticut and, and look around. What we do with God's, here's the rule, here's what I expect. I love you, I've made you, I've given you all this. Serve me with your choices. And then he sees what we do and we won't. All of human history, every successive age is a fail. And the end of this age is a fail. And the whole world is going to worship a false Messiah empowered by Satan. The whole world is going to be duped by this thing. In a one world government. And it'll be characterized by promises of Freedom, like they're saying, and the, one of the things that Klaus Schwab recently said is that in, in so many years, uh, by 20, whatever, you won't um, own anything and you'll like it. That's the goal. You won't have any property, so you can't have any free exercise of your choice with what you own. So who determines what the right choices are and with the property? Oh, you don't worry about that. We've got that. Well, I, I'm kind of doing a post-mortem through this study because we have taken freedom and we've destroyed ourselves with it. I believe. I, that's my contention. And, uh, and, and the, the, the other side of that is, so what? You don't destroy yourself with the free choices that God has given you. And no matter, no matter where you are, what your circumstances are, you can always say, this choice that I have in front of me is for him. Great or small, whatever the choice is, this is for him. The volitional function of human beings is always under the authority of the Creator. I don't mean that God determines what you'll choose. I mean that God has the right to say what you should choose, and you have the responsibility to figure out what He wants you to say. And it's a personal relationship kind of thing. You have a Father in heaven, and He has expectations, and they're the best and highest, and they're good for you. And they militate against what you feel like in your sin nature at times. Because sin is a vanquished enemy, but you still have to deal with its presence. Volitional function, the ability to choose, is always under the authority of your creator. So let's, let's fast forward a little bit in Genesis to chapter 4. You know the big fail of volition in Genesis 3. God said, don't eat, and so what they did was they ate. Now, the, that, that's a summary that leaves out some important details, like the serpent goes after the woman, the woman goes after the man and undoes creation order of, of authority, right? Undoes the headship of a husband, undoes the dominion of humans over the animals. That's a complete upset of God's design in Genesis 3. And I want you to see that the thing to take away from that, which we've already looked at, is that the, the problem there is independent reason, independent observation, without benefit of divine revelation, God said, this will kill you. When you eat from it, you'll surely die. So don't do it. Eat everything else. But you will surely die when you eat from the tree of knowledge. And they did. They were spiritually dead in the day that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can read about it in Genesis 3 where God says, how do you know you're naked? Who told you that? Did you eat from the tree? Something changed in you. You're, you're different, aren't you? That's what we're talking about. There's a separation that's happened spiritually between man and God because of this 
independent exercise of volition, and I mean independent of God's revelation. You and I cannot rule what's been entrusted to us without God's word telling us what his preferences are. And then us in worship to him saying, you've given me this trust and I give it to you. I exercise it for your sake. It's a personal relationship with God for every individual in every organization from the lowest uh, janitor emptying the trash can to the highest CEO in in the highest level of the penthouse. Every person is a volitional agent responsible to God for what you're doing with that which has been entrusted to you. So you are a king, if you will, or a queen of your dominion, whatever God's put, over, put under you. And what you should do then with that dominion is glorify God and be such a benevolent dictator in your dominion that um, the people under you also learn to glorify God and exercise their agency the same way. Genesis 4 and human volition. What happened in Genesis 4? Cain killed Abel. Do we really have to go through the volitional component stuff of this? I think we do because in Cain and Abel's story is worship, is the whole beginnings of the patriarchal worship, the sacrificial system. And it's tied directly to the the thoughts together. It's not just the murder, right? Before the murder, there's a conversation with the creator between Cain and God. Cain receives revelation and he's told, you need to make a good choice here where you have made a bad choice and then you can rejoice in being, receiving favor if you do well. We'll see it. Genesis 4.1, man had relations, actually literally in Hebrew, he knew, he knew his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. And we think this echoes what uh, Genesis 3.15 promises of the seed of the woman. This seems to be a statement I mean, there are a lot of things that happened, and we only have this recorded. So it's significant. She says, I've gotten a child with the help of the Lord, a man-child. There's, a, there's, there's two kinds of humans right now. There's a man and a woman, and the one that God gave us is a boy. That's the gender reveal, they call it today. The baby's born, it's a boy. God said there would be a seed of the woman, and his seed, you know, he would crush the serpent. So is this it? And it's a hint, perhaps. I've gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks. What a fast-forward that was. Abel's born, zip to 20 years old, he's a keeper of flocks, right? Did you notice how fast the, the story moves? I mean, God shows up to Cain at verse 7. This story is only eight verses before Abel's dead. But He's a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Is there anything wrong with tilling the ground? No. Is there anything wrong with keeping flocks? No. But you have in this verse, in this passage, the need for a medium of exchange. Because God provided the skins to cover the sinful bodies of Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 3. And we already know from just that little tidbit we have that God is doing this blood sacrifice thing. That makes sense when you read about Abel's offering, Cain's offering. And I want to say this about reading Genesis. We don't know all that they had revealed to them. We don't have the whole book of God's revelation to them when he was appearing. He just shows up and talks to Cain. We have that recorded, but we don't know all that people knew. We just know what Moses in his divinely inspired historiography has included in Genesis. So when, he, when, when Abel offers a sacrifice, it is certainly implied that he knows what he's doing and that there's a standard and that Cain has been told the standard and he doesn't meet the standard. 
But he gets, a, he gets a mulligan. He gets a second shot at this. As we read, Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so what Cain should be doing is raising crops and trading with his brother for sacrifice animals because God wants a sacrifice. We'll read it. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. In human history, in the time and space in which you and I live, several thousand years ago, this happened with the first two humans okay, that were born, that we know were born to Adam and Eve. And of course, what about Cain's wife? They had many children, and the, genetic, uh, the genome was uh, much cleaner back then. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And we've had the hint of the skins in Genesis 3, but uh, here we're going to learn this isn't what God wants. Now, God is sovereign. He is the one that gets to decide what he wants. He has all the authority to make this is the decision, this is what I want. Cain has a problem with this. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock, his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Who is Cain angry with? He's angry at God, I think. Because, and you could say, well, he kills Abel, he's going to be angry at Abel. Yeah, that's a secondary thing. It seems that the reason Cain is, in verse 5, is angry is because God had no regard for his offering. He turned in his, his, uh, his exam and he got a, an F on it. And he's angry. It could be that he's just angry that he got a bad outcome. But it isn't just that I got an F on the paper, is it? It's that the teacher gave me one. It's a personal interaction here. That God, I like what you've done here, Abel. Not so much. That's the way it works. And this principle right here, we just read through, and we should just keep reading through. But when you study things down and think about them, think about this. God had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain, he had no regard for Cain's offering. For Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. He turned his face away. He rejected what Cain brought. The word fellow and thelema, the word group for will in the New Testament, the noun is thelema, the verb is thelo. When you read thy will be done, it's this word thelo or thelema. Not as I will, thelo, but as but your will, thelema, be done. These words people have, have, have imported all kinds of theology into and said, this means God's eternal sovereign decree of the decisions that he's made in advance before the world was. That that's God's will, and you're not going to beat God's will. But if you look at the way the word is actually used in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's talking about God's preferences, what he wants and what he doesn't. He doesn't want Abel's, uh, Cain's offering. He wants Abel's offering. And he gets to choose. He gets to say, this is the way it is, and it's derivative of his person. His person is perfectly righteous, and his decisions are all reflecting perfect righteousness. And so we're different in this way. We don't construe what is right and wrong. We adjust to what God says is right and wrong and get our moral sense from him. We really do. So before there's a murder, there's a problem of a misbegotten offering. Cain does something that he shouldn't have done, and he gets the outcome from God that he should have gotten. Because God is the determinant of what should be. What should happen in the world in which we live is that Cain's offer be rejected. And what Cain should do with that information is adjust to it and say, oh, the way this works is I bring a blood sacrifice, not my way. 
And what Cain should do right here is say, I thought I could, could, could go around what you had said, apparently, but I can't. I'll have to make the adjustment. I'll do the offering the way you want it. He should have adjusted. But Cain is a fallen, sinful human with the corruption of his father, Adam, coursing through him. And so what does he do? He chooses to set up an independent morality from the creator's preferences. And he demonstrates the problem with human government. He breaks that vital connection to what God wants based on what God has said. So he becomes angry in reaction to God's rejection. But, you know, wisdom is the fear of the Lord, not squaring off against him. Well, God is patient, loving, slow to anger, and so he has a word for Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? I, I believe the questions that God asks in Genesis are, are a wealth of theology, but I don't think that they're telling us God doesn't know things. Where are you, Adam? Adam, you who I can't find you. No, where are you, Adam, is look at yourself. <laughs> where, are you, where are you now? Right? And here... Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? God knows. Further revelation shows us. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows all the knowable. He's omniscient. So why does he ask him, why has your countenance fallen? Because he's supposed to look at himself and self-assess. We're all supposed to look at ourselves and self-assess according to God's revelation. What is the circumstance that you're in, Cain? I offered what I thought you should like, and then you didn't like it. What I thought you would want, you didn't want. I mean, I worked hard on that. I gave you the best vegetables that I could, could, could bring out of the ground by your grace, according to your system of how this, this all works. But I worked this ground, and here I brought you this wonderful food, and you don't want it, but you took the, the offering from the flock. And so I'm angry because of your rejection. This is the answer Cain should come to himself. And should tell himself, he's tell the truth. I'm angry because you rejected me. And then he should say, and that is arrogance on my part because I'm supposed to conform to what you want, not the other way around. You're God and I'm not. So your preference rules and mine doesn't. And that would be human self-government. And here one of the key techniques for doing this is self-assessment. Am I aligned with what God reveals? Do I want for myself what he said he wants for me? Do I really? Do I know enough of what he said, or am I a casual uh, participant in the things of God? Where, you know, the culture sort of rules my life. Something will. But I go to church. I have an, a, a casual uh, a, a approach with God's word. But, but you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fanatic or anything. See, letting this sink in and thinking it through, the, the rejection that God offered Cain is grace. It's God giving him feedback. He now has information. That rejection from God, like everything God gives us, is revelation of God. He now knows that if he would just think about who he's dealing with, the creator, who kicked him, his parents out of the garden, who's got a flaming sword in the angel's hand, waiting for anybody, trying to get it back into the Garden of Eden, he should know enough of the fear of the Lord to say, I better make an adjustment. But he doesn't have the fear of the Lord. And in Proverbs, that makes him a fool. And I don't say that in derision of him. I say that in an assessment. It's folly that he's engaged in because it's self-assertion. 
And so he's not willing to be a product of what God said and do his, live his life, make his decisions for God's sake, according to what God said. He wanted to have it his way. It's pretty obvious. And then God gives him more revelation. After self-assessment, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? This is one of those verses that we probably read through, you know, on day one of our committed Bible reading. I'm going to get all the way through Genesis 5 at least today, get to some genealogy, and then we'll pick it up tomorrow. We just read through, if you do well, what does that mean? Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. When I get to the sin crouching at the door thing, and it's desires for you, but you must master it, I think I understand what that's saying, because that's where we live. But the, the previous statement is where, the, where the, the thing begins. It's really helpful. What is the determinant of whether or not you do well? What was the test of right or wrong, pass or fail? What was the test? Help me out. What, is, what was it? Huh? Yeah, it was what God said. Doing well was conforming to what God wanted. And so the test, it's very objective. God didn't like it. <laughs> now you're like, no, that's subjective. That's God with his desire deciding. And that's reality. That's what we mean by objective. God the personal God is the only one whose preferences determine what is right and wrong. That's biblical morality. So, I mean, that's what the garden of the tree of the knowledge is. It's God said. It's wrong because he said. No. So don't do it. There's nothing in the text to indicate that that particular fruit was poisonous or that it had a, a spiritual power. To, it was the transgression of God said when he prov- prohibited. And here... If you do well, doing well would be doing what God wanted and getting the result that God had regard. And God regarded Abel and Abel, his face is oriented toward God. His countenance is lifted up. He is functioning according to design. Let us make them in our image and likeness and let them rule over our works. That's the design. And there is no function according to design until we figure out that God is God and we're not made for him to serve him, to be pleasing to him. It's the basic, uh, it's the basic equipment to be a functional human according to our design. If you do not do well, if you go against what I want, if you displease me, then you are uh, about to be consumed by the alternative to a relationship with me. Things are good when they're good with God. But the alternative in yourself, independent from God, is the full expression of your sin nature, which takes you to the, all the way to the most horrible thing that's ever happened in all of human history is that one of us killed another. The image of God was destroyed by the image of God. The image bearer destroyed the image bearer. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, so Cain re- reviewed with Abel what his what God had said to him. Cain tells him. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And this is a direct fulfillment of the last part of verse 7. Sin is crouching the door, and it's desires for you, but you must master it. Now, there is a volitional statement in here too, right? The volitional component is you have a tendency towards sin that wants to devour you and control you and destroy you and your actions, but you have to prevail, I think earlier in the verse is the way for all of human history we need to do this in our 
in the age in which we live with the Holy Spirit, there's a new work that actually makes this easier. But the principle has always been, if you do well, if you relate to me the way I want you to, if you walk with me according to my desires, if you're pleasing to me, then your countenance will be lifted up. Otherwise, you're, gonna, you're going to be a product of your, of your corruption. And that's what you have in human volition. This gets to the question of morality. If you, the one thing we're sure of is that murder is immoral. Of all the questions of morality, murder, the killing of an innocent, quote-unquote, innocent human that is not a government function in Genesis 9-6, the, function, the, you know, the origin of human government, man ruling over man is Genesis 9-6, the concept of capital punishment. But the, concept, the, the question of murder, of killing someone uh, who should not be killed, that's the idea. And the volition that Cain exercised. In this story of the man slaying his brother, there's a lot more going on than he killed his brother. There's a lot more going on than he has a sin nature and he gave into it. There's the question of his bitterness and anger at God's rejection. So was it moral for Cain to kill his brother? Of course not. If it, if it, was it immoral? Sorry. Of course it was, it was immoral. And if it's not immoral for Cain to kill Abel, then there is no such thing as morality. This is just the baseline concept of morality. And what am I driving toward? Driving toward that riddle that we have about can you legislate morality? Can the government decide what morality is? Well, it depends on who the government is. If the government is God, then yes. If the government is man, then no. And that's how morality works. That's why you want a human government that is looking up to the creator to say what is right and wrong. So, so I, God legislates morality. Don't murder. It's right for human governments to legislate this as well, but you don't, by that legislation, make the person moral. See, the question of morality is what is right and wrong, and God is the one who determines what that is. Compare Genesis 4 to Exodus 20. You and I could say that absolutely, without any question, murder is immoral. Don't, thou shalt not murder. What makes the act immoral, though, is the question. What makes it immoral? What we will tend to do in our human independence from God is say, I don't like it, so it's bad. Or we'll poll the audience. Most people would agree that there's something wrong with murder. Or we'll do some other human, like, slippery slope argument trying to come up with what is the moral choice because we all kind of know. One, um, one legislator said, I don't know what, uh, I said, I, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. You know, I know what immorality is because I just have a sense. And C.S. Lewis would argue, and I think he's right, that we're God's image bearers. We have a moral sense. But what makes it moral is not our sense. Our sense is reflecting something else, and it is the creator. It's what God wants. It's God's character. Cain is responsible for the choice, and that's more responsibility. And the key to morality, the key to human agency, is, the prior act, is that prior act of murder was attempting independent dominion. He's trying to to do what he wants to do and say, God, you work with that. That's Christianity in America today, too. That's what we're saying. We're saying, we'll do what we think is right from our cultural understandings, and if we just say, God, you can have it, then that's good enough. And what we all need to do is not say, look at others and their practices and say, that's them. We should all look at ourselves and say, am I giving God what God said he wants? Independent dominion doesn't exist, but it's a fantasy. 
All human agency is subordinate to the Creator. And this is the myth of our secularized culture. It's the problem in our children's heads. They're growing up thinking their decisions are independent of what God wants, that he doesn't have an opinion about it, and that there isn't a reckoning for that opinion. All our kids are growing up in the fantasy that Cain tried to engage in, that God gets to receive whatever I have to offer or nothing. That concept of independence. And after all, I can't see him, I can't hear him, and I don't necessarily reason my way to him. So... I mean, I'll just be independent of him. And that is where the fool is. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. First of all, on independence, as we close, independence from God is an absurdity. Can you agree with me? Independence from God is an absurdity. Nobody's independent of God. We try to make independent decisions, like he's not going to have a judgment on them, but he will. Why is independence from God an absurdity? Because our very... Continued existence is by God making it so. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. He's providing air that we breathe and gravity that holds our bodies together and the weak forces and strong forces and the atomic structure. I mean, wherever your microscope takes you, God is working that. And we're not. And wherever the telescope takes you, God is working that and we're not. And we are dealing with the universe that exists because someone said so. And that someone, all right, is there's no independence from him. So yet by design, we have the capacity to choose for or against his way. And that is this great delegation, this capacity to make your choice. If you cannot make an independent, I'm sorry, not independent, but a responsible choice as an agent, that God isn't making it through you, but you're choosing something. I contend you can't be able and offer from the flock. You can't worship God. Because you're not actually doing it. Someone else is doing it. And this is the the challenge. I don't know much, but I know that God has given us agency and he holds us responsible for our choices in Genesis 4 and throughout the rest of the scriptures. He's given us the capacity to choose. He's given us revelation. And then he lets us roll with it. The capacity to choose. Sin entered the human race when our parents adopted independent exercise of God-given volition. A A lot of syllables in that. But that's where, that's where sin came from, an independent exercise of volition. And you and I rule in the free capacity of our volition. We can choose right or wrong. We can choose yes or no to God. We can choose moral or immoral. But we do not have the freedom to say what the right choice is. Why do we sin? Why do we commit personal sins? Why do we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to in our spiritual giftedness in Romans 12? Why do we sin? In every case, why did you say that thing on the phone you shouldn't have said about that person? Why are you running your mouth? Why is your sword a flame of fire, or your tongue a flame of fire? Why is there a sword hacking people to pieces? Why are you bitter? Why have you let anger harden into bitterness and you're unforgiving? Why are you disobedient to God in the ways that you are? Why am I? What's wrong with us? In every case, we felt like it. In every case, the choice that we made was derivative of either what God said or how I felt. God save us from the idolatry that Paul talks about in Philippians where our God is our stomach. Our God is our appetite. We set our mind on earthly things. And in the same way, give us that sense, that feeling, that desire of joy where our countenance is lifted up because we're pleasing to you. This is our prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we want to rule in what you've given us with wisdom according to your design as your image bearers. We can see how at the very base level of the little child with what you've entrusted to him, the dominion he has over his own little choices. We can see how your revelation is so vital and we can see how it so easily gets rejected. We, uh, we move in favor of our sinful feelings at times and we act in, in a supposed independence of you. But Father, we're never free from your judgment. We're never free from your assessment of our choices. Father, you've entrusted much to us in anticipation of our rule of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. We recognize that we're in an academy phase. We're being trained for the exercise of this dominion. Help us embrace this truth, Father, that there's always the right choice. There's always the worship choice. There's always asking what do you want and can I trust you with it as I give you what you want. Father, we want to walk with you in a way that pleases you every step of the way. We know that involves trust, but it also involves obedience in that trust. Strengthen us to manage what you've entrusted to us, each of us. And Father, save our people from the loss of this idea. We're like, we're so herd bound. We are all like sheep. We've all gone astray. And as the government of human beings aggregates into higher and higher levels, it gets worse and worse. Let us manage what you've entrusted to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.